Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Will Clark, Senior Communications Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. Almost all of us at one time or another, and if we're lucky it's just one time, have found ourselves attending a meeting chaired or led by someone who's just not very good at the task, leaving us bored, drained, resentful, or all three as a result. Dark thoughts sometimes ensue. Joining me today is someone who not only has a lot of experience chairing meetings, but is also, as I have witnessed firsthand, quite good at it, which is fortunate for Gustavus since he happens to have chaired our board of trustees on which he continues to serve. He currently chairs the board's academic affairs committee. The Reverend Dan Poffenberger graduated Gustavus in 1982 and went on to pursue a career in the ministry. He served as lead pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Stillwater, Minnesota for 10 years, and since 2015, he has been lead pastor at Shepherd of the Lake Lutheran Church, also in Stillwater, a congregation like Gustavus itself affiliated with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or ELCA, which includes some 4 million members and numerous excellent national liberal arts colleges. For the past two years, Dan has also been director of Becoming, Leadership on the Way, which with funding from the Lillian endowment aims to develop leadership among young and their career clergy. In addition to his MDiv degree from Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, Dan holds a Doctorate of Ministry, Semiotics, and Future Studies from Portland Seminary, and has co-authored a manual titled Working Together for the series People Together, Small Group Ministry Guides. As you will hear, Dan's work and thinking are not only quite interesting, but also engaged with critical issues of our day, like racial justice and climate change. And I've been very much looking forward to speaking with him for the podcast. Welcome, Dan. I appreciate you taking the time. So glad we could do this. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure. So thanks. You're quite welcome. Yeah, I haven't been introduced like that ever. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> my, my pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, let, let's start sort of right now in the present. What is it like to, uh, what is it like at your church? You have a lot of, well, you have 4,000 members or something like that. Actually, it's, it's 6,000. We just wow, uh, kind of, yeah, um, it feels like I'm, I'm, I'm flying the, the aircraft by remote control these days. Uh, That's what I wonder. Yeah. How, and so, it, how so? Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's just a huge pivot from, uh, from large gatherings and intense kind of in-person relational work to uh, leading, you know, whole staff and organization into more of a virtual presence and virtual reality. And to be honest, it, it's been both uh, stimulating as well as as uh, a little disorienting. The the stimulating part has actually been quite fun. It's it's a amazing exercise in creativity. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I work with really talented, wonderful, creative people. So it's been fun to watch them shine and surprise themselves as to what they can do. And the, the feedback and relationship with the congregation has also been really rewarding in this time. But there are, you know, there's a lot of loss in all of that, too. Yeah, it sounds, yeah. I mean, you're, you're articulating exactly what I feel. I know so many faculty at Gustavus and elsewhere feel about the online online teaching. It's, right. a, it's a chance to be creative. It's it's going well, and we're all yeah. rising to the occasion, but it's different for sure. Um, so are you doing, let, let's say it's a Sunday. I don't know how many, would you do multiple services on a typical Sunday? Correct. Yeah, correct. And, and now are you still doing that, adhering to that schedule? It's yeah, all online. So 
Yeah, so Shepherd of the Lake is a, is a large place. It's a very contemporary, very open, lots of natural light. And we can seat up to 1,200 people wow. fairly comfortably. And so, you know, the energy in that room on a Sunday or whenever we're doing large worship events is tangible. And it's it's a very performative kind of place. If you yeah. are, you know, in front or, or facilitating the worship service uh, now, uh, we pre-record everything. We're working, you know, days and weeks ahead of time and we put it together in kind of an a la carte function. And we, we made a decision that's probably different than many other communities. We don't go into the worship center and record a service from start to finish with nobody present there. We have broken down the liturgy into its component parts and assign different members of the staff to do different parts of it on any given Sunday. And then it kind of gets stitched together on an a la carte basis. So a lot of it is filmed outside of the worship space and um, it's made it easier for people to share the little bits and pieces of it that they want to share with their family or friends or, or neighbors. Um, So yeah, quite different experience. Yeah. Are you, um, and boy, again, that relates to teaching. I mean, one of the things I love about teaching is the performative uh, aspect. Um, by the way, I used to play, I, I was baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church on my wow. dad's side. Wow. Wow. He was born here, but his parents came from Greece. And mainly, I just remember the fresh bread at communion. Yeah, that's a rich, <laughs> oh that's a rich experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then yep. I, but mostly I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Um, yep. With Father Rufai, because confirmed in the Episcopal <laughs> Church. But my brother and I, he was sort of high Episcopal, if that makes any sense. But man, yep, we used yep, to, yep. we occasionally played a uh, priest, you know, we, we, yep, we were little kids. Yep. We put on our, our bathrobes and, but I, I, I can relate totally to the performative part. The, um, are you in every one of these, uh, are you, are you in every service? Are you doing the sermon every? No, um, no. You know, an interesting part of, um, leading a staff like this in, in the ELCA is that the generation before me of senior pastors were all men, first of all. And secondly, they really created their, they were really the center of their worshiping community. So Mm. they preached 80% of the time, et cetera. There's, and we might get into this later on in the conversation, but there's danger in all of that, that, that generation of leader, a lot of them really crashed and burned because that kind of mythology of being a leader in that way is very isolating. And, and I think, being at Shepherd of the Lake, particularly, we've made some choices there where we've tried to share leadership in a much more broad kind of way. So uh, at best, I preach maybe 50% of the time. There are certain Sundays where I am not present. Um, That was true both when we were doing live worship and now kind of in this digital way. And that's all really intentional. And so, um, no, I'm not there every time, which is great. And I have to say, for the first time in 30 some years, worshiping with my wife on a Sunday morning on our couch with a good <laughs> cup of coffee is, is, uh, is a joy in my life right now that I've never experienced before. And so uh, I'm a little broken. I don't know what's going to happen when we go back to uh, live live experience. But oh, man, um, you're, 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 you're speaking. I'm sounds like I'm speaking with a coffee lover too. That, yeah, that sounds, yeah. that sounds good. That's a double worship, worshiping the coffee. And yeah. Um, and isn't, isn't that kind of the beauty of this moment too, is, you know, some of the things we've been forced to do differently, we may carry with us, right? Like this, right. the congregation I serve, we will never be just simply, um, a non-digital church ever again, right. I think. And we just welcomed a whole group of new members and, 
we now for the first time are getting people joining the community that have never physically worshiped in our space. So wow. yeah, yeah, there's good things here. It's yeah. It's and I, I think you, you, you raise an important point, which is here. I'm thinking as a historian too, not only, um, you know, one way to think about it is what, what have we lost, but also, you know, what have we, you know, as horrible as this, what have we gained and what might, right. what might persist, right? right? We shall see. Um, but I think right. that's, that's interesting to think about. Um, so how many, so your, your, is your title senior pastor? Is that what you, is that the right the official? <laughs> yeah. Senior pastor or lead pastor. Okay. okay. Uh, and then how many, so how many other pastors are there and how many of them are women? Yeah. So until recently we had five of us that were ordained and one deacon. Um, so we have three female pastors on staff currently and two male okay. pastors on staff. That's great. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Is, is this the largest, I mean, I mean, is it the largest congregation in the state? I would think, I don't I mean, No, no, we're not uh, actually, but wow. we're one of the larger ones in the country. And, okay. but, you know, and again, it depends on what you mean. Um, uh, the definition of member of a congregation has changed and is fluid. Uh, mm. Back in the day of our parents, you know, a, a well aligned member uh, both belonged in a, in a literal sense and was there three or four times a month on a Sunday. Um, mm. Today, we've got folks that are tremendously aligned with us that we might see in physical, you know, worship back a year ago, we might see them once a month. So everything feels different now. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, I mean, that's, is that pre COVID too? I mean, pre pandemic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been over the last 20 yeah. years. And, yeah. you know, we even have lots, a number of people that are in leadership who technically aren't members of the congregation. Huh. Uh, and uh, I think that sense of what it means to belong is, is something we continue to learn and, and lean into in a very less legalistic way than we used to. Yeah, that's also an excellent point um, and observation about the, the change over time. Because I'm thinking, I can't remember if this is, this may be inaccurate, but something I, we may be very um, a religious society, but we're, the, but church attendance or church going might be, down. I don't know if that's quite right, but just, just in general, how people feel in relationship to an institution and belonging. I mean, that, that, that's an issue too, with any, any school, any, any liberal arts college as well. What yeah. does that mean? Um, yeah. I, I would guess that if you looked at a lot of the institutions that the generation that were our parents belong to, all of them have suffered from an erosion of people wanting to belong to fraternal organizations or societies or other things like that. And, and generations younger than us are even more resistant to those kinds of labeling or identity things. But I, I also think there's a real freedom in all this, you know, people, yes, people have, have fallen out of love with the institutional church for a lot of really good reasons, right? Like the church has failed people on so many counts over a long period of time that I, I don't blame them that they have said, I might believe in God, but I'm not so sure I believe in the church anymore. Right. So, uh, and believe me, I've had that conversation with number, you know, hundreds of people over the past 20 years where, you know, and so I'm really interested in helping shape a community that, that might be Lutheran with a lower cat, lowercase L, where it might not be the first thing you notice about us, but if you listen carefully, it's it's a thoroughly Lutheran place. It just the form is much more loose and um, uh, non. 
we have tradition, but we're not traditionalists, if I can put yeah. it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, you're anticipating uh, one question. Let me let me ask two two questions that are that are related. One, what what is it what does it mean to be Lutheran? First of mm. all, and then the other question relates to what you just described—the kind of looseness. Because my my sense, and, and I've never been to the church. I've seen yeah. pictures; it looks beautiful. And reading about it, the the kind of community outreach you're you're doing. I'd like to talk you to talk about that too. But first, what, what do you what do you mean? It's it's you know lowercase Lutheran. What what does that mean? Yeah. So. <laughs> versus, so this, versus a yeah, capital. Boy, we're, yeah, we're getting into a long story here. I'm afraid. Yeah, I, there could be another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so so. I was a mission developer outside of Chicago for 10 years. And in the ELCA, what a mission developer is, is somebody who gets sent by the national church to essentially start a congregation in a new community. And so you start without people or place or money, in essence. And so in the far western suburbs of Chicago, during that decade, I really connected a lot with de-churched people. So they had some form of a church background. Easily half of them were ex-Roman Catholic. And this was the day where these um, clergy abuse uh, stories were starting to come public. And whether it was that or the issue of divorce or the issue of abortion or the issue of women in leadership, um, I just connected with all sorts of people who felt either marginalized or ignored or forgotten or beat up by the church whether it was Roman Catholic or mainline or evangelical, and were looking for a place where they could connect with the best parts of what they remember of the church without having to get through all the problematic parts of the church. And so I just got a heart for those kind of people. And, um, and that's how that congregation really got built was folks that kind of, because we were worshiping in elementary schools and middle school. My favorite place was a cafetorium, which was <laughs> half of a cafeteria and half of an auditorium. And, um, you know, when people come to a place like that, they've kind of given up that a place with stained glass windows and an organ and a pastor dressed in robes and stoles is going to speak to them. That, you know, for whatever reason, that's not the door they want to walk through. And right. so... Once that happened with me and I took their stories seriously and connected with that deep love they had for God and this, this, this hope they had that this faith that they had a remnant of was real and life-giving for them, but they couldn't take it being mediated by um, the church that had hurt them somehow or forgotten Makes them sense. or marginalized them. That really changed me a lot. And so what I love about Lutheranism is I think it's got all the right theology, this, this theology of grace, this understanding of what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Um, you know, I would have a strong critique of our evangelical brothers and sisters who have uh, really, I think, misinterpreted the gospel in a very dangerous way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, on the other side, the Roman Catholic Church that has had its own significant failings it's it's lovely to be a part of a church that I think treats the gospel with an openness and a generosity, a willing to learn from the other, a willingness to acknowledge that in other faith traditions, there is truth that can be helpful and life-giving um, as well. And so I love being in that generous place where 
you can help somebody reach back into their past and take the best, most freeing part of the gospel and reclaim it and reimagine it for themselves and and not have to deal with the legalism, um, the the paternal kind of instincts of the church right. and have to navigate through all of all of the things that had been used to hurt them or marginalize them. So yeah, you hit a pretty deep vein there. Sorry. Yeah, but. no, that's all into no, not at all. I'm just thinking, and I'm thinking as you speak that um, uh, your own the current church, right? Am I correct? It's, it's only it's not that old. What 50, 50, 50 well, years old? And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. It, it's about fifty three or fifty four years old. Yep. Did did it sort of? I mean, so how do you? I mean, you're you're answering one of the questions I had. Is yeah, how does one start a church? How does one start a <laughs> congregation? Yeah, right. Wow. Because. Um, and did this church, did, did the, the, the shepherd uh, uh, of the Lake Church, did it did it start with in the same kind of way? I mean, yeah, I don't know. Actually it did. did. It, it did. Yeah. And it, it started in Scott County when Scott County was blooming, blossoming. Okay. And they were Lutheran when Lutheranism was still a brand in Minnesota that people would gravitate towards. Uh, and so they capitalized on it. And they were, they really majored in these young families that were moving to Prior Lake, Savage, Shakopee. Okay. And you can see the rise of those school districts. I mean, they've multiplied over and over and over again. And Shepherd of the Lake rode that wave. And they were a fairly liberal place through the whole time. They kept outgrowing their buildings. Uh, they were growing so fast. And frankly, I think they benefited as well from the ELCA not planting another church somewhere in the community. So they were they were able to capture kind of the full impact of the migration of folks that probably were already Lutheran and in a highly Lutheran area. And they just, they were good at a number of things. And they gained this really audacious vision for a, um, a new kind of community that had partnerships involved. And so they developed a campus on about 80 acres of farmland that and wetlands that's just gorgeous. And we have a Presbyterian homes on the campus. We have a YMCA on the campus. There's wow. a, there's a shelter for, um, a social service organization that works with people who've been sex trafficked and they are housed there and receive social services as they get their life back. Um, so really, really wonderful wow. vision. Um, and audacious in terms of its financial implications as well. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're still, we're still working through all of the indebtedness that came along with that beautiful vision, sure. but, but the vision itself works. And yeah, yeah, that's neat. I mean, so, um, I mean, the community outreach is, is built into it from its inception. It sounds exactly. like, the, yeah, exactly. That, so is that, is that, is that, Unusual for, for a Lutheran church? I don't know. I mean, is that what, yeah, I think this was a one of a kind. Uh -huh. uh, and even now, uh, all these years later, a couple of times a year, I'll get a phone call from somebody who's in a congregation somewhere else in the country that's beginning to wonder about what they could do with partnerships. And they want to see the space. They want to talk to our partners. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's been a fun. Yeah, so you're, a fun, a you're, a, you're a model. A little bit. A little yeah, bit. your model. I mean, it sounds like it's a great fit for you because of your work in, in, in St. Charles. Um, right. Similar, really building on that. Yeah, it looked. I mean, one day I'll get there. Um, it just looked really beautiful, mm -hmm. um, and that and that background is quite interesting. And it, and it relates to Gustavus. So let's turn to Gustavus for a little yeah. bit here, because yeah. Gustavus is, you know, I mean, it's it's not only an ELCA 
National Liberal Arts College, but there's that sense at Gustavus too, more than a sense, it's part of our mission to be engaged with the community and around social justice. But um, tell us a little bit about your own background, where you grew up and, and um, how you wound up at Gustavus. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Hopkins and oh, yeah. uh, not that far. Uh, no. I'm a first generation college student in my family. Uh, my mm -hmm. folks grew up in Iowa and... When I was in high school, my dad was in the grocery business, and I remember there was a conversation he and I had that we could do a grocery store together or they could send me to college. And <laughs> um, I think back now that I'm past his age at that time, uh, I think, wow, what a conversation we had. And my, my father had just had open heart surgery, and I thought, God, we could do that store, and that would be kind of fun, but I think it would kill my dad. And uh I had dreams. I was a debate geek in high school. I was a pretty good achiever in high school, and I wanted to be a lawyer. And uh, Gustavus was the college of my church, and we were really active there. And it, I had applied um, out at, at uh, George Washington University and sure. uh, was all set to go into a program there that they had a five-year program in undergrad and law school. You could do the whole thing in five years if you went full-time through the summers. And then my dad had the open heart surgery and, um, and I decided to stay close to home and I went to Gustavus thinking I could go there for a year and then transfer back out East. And that never happened. I, I, uh, I came to Gustavus on kind of a one year trial basis and loved it and felt at home there. Um, but the thing I reflect on most these days is how little my parents knew about college and they dropped me off there. And I think they had no idea what, that life was going to be like and what it would afford me. And um, I'm just really grateful that they understood that that would be a path for me. And yeah, I, I, I can totally relate. Um, my dad did not go to college. Uh, my mom went to a two-year two-year teacher grew up on a farm and we call downstate Illinois, um, mm -hmm. a little south of Champaign Urbana. She grew yep. up on a farm. Did did I think ultimately went to two-year teachers college, uh, Eastern Illinois University, I think it is, and then taught for a little bit and didn't like it and bailed. But yep. so, I mean, technically, I guess I'm not first generation, but I sort of feel that way. And I, I, yep. I always say to myself and other people, I, I'm constantly saying to myself, "Thank goodness my parents." valued education and did not look at college the way some of my relatives right. did, you know, as right. kind of, a, oh, who do you think you are? Why do you, what a waste of your time. Yep. And, um, yep. I am so grateful for that. I hear you. I mean, I really do. Cause I don't think my, my parents really understood either, you know, what, what, what it was about. Um, but never, never, ever made fun of it. My decision or questioned it. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's a gift. I think of it yep. as a gift. I really do. Yeah. So, I'm really pleased with how many first generation students Gustavus continues yes. to yes to bring into the community because it it changes everybody you know it yes. is not simply an investment just in that person it changes the trajectory of an entire family that is exactly right for a long long time so yeah yeah uh, it's so true i think i won't mention her name but i hope to record for the podcast uh, fairly recent alum graduated not that long ago same thing i mean just her life just changed so dramatically as a result of being able to go to college and, and finish Gustavus. Um, it's incredible. So I do like that about the place a lot. I do. Um, and I wonder if it doesn't change Gustavus a lot too. I think but, so. Oh, I think it you, does. If you didn't have that, that influence on the campus, right. you just wonder, 
you know, we're already a privileged place. And, and yes, maybe that's a little bit of a governor on that for us to, to, to keep these first generation students as a priority because it, it helped reminds us, right? Of, yeah. Of a no, lot of really think, important things. I think that's right. I think, um, I haven't said this, but colleagues will say about uh, about our students. You know, they'll they'll do anything you they you ask them to do. <laughs> it isn't quite true, but you know, I know what they I mean. Some yeah. of that, not all of that. Some of that is is the you know being being the first first generation. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that, and and you know, and some of our faculty as well. So, yeah. so you came to Gustavus. You we 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 hooked you. I wasn't there. We're not we, but yeah. uh, they hooked yeah. you. Yeah. Um, did you know, so at that point, what were you thinking, political science? If you were already thinking about law, uh, yeah. I assume not, not the ministry at, at that point? No, no. Um, Ron Christensen, one of the poli-sci professors, I think was the person I met on my campus visit. Yeah, he's great. And, oh, you know, here's the sweetest thing, too. I I was an economics major with a political science minor, I would guess. Oh, I wow, thought I was I going to law school. I might have done an MBA. I had the foreign service officers, uh, application on my desk, my senior year and thought about that for a while, took this wild, you know, left-hand turn into seminary. And I was in Walnut Grove was my first call, little house on the prairie, Walnut Grove. And one Sunday here comes Ron Christensen and sits in the back and comes to worship on a Sunday morning. And I thought of that, that trajectory of like, um, I remember when I was walking on campus, he rode by on his bicycle and, yeah. and stopped and engaged me. And I mean, that, that little bit of investment in me was just enough to make me think, well, I could, I could belong here, you know? Yeah. And then he had no idea, I don't think ever, how important he was to me. And I would have, I mean, I about fell over when he showed up at church all those years later and I've just been so grateful. And that story just has represented kind of the best part of that interaction between faculty and students that you can only have at a place like Gustavus. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. And Ron was one of the, Ron was one of the greats. He was a, an informal mentor to both mm. my wife, Kate, who taught in the history department until she mm. retired me. Um, yeah. I mean, it just, Award-winning teacher, scholar, uh, the the whole bit. I once made the mistake of saying to Ron, I, I referred to my students, and he corrected oh. me. <laughs> uh-huh. said, which said, I, I still remember that. Which he said, they're 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 no one students. They're no, but um, yeah. yeah, one of the greats, um, Echos yeah. Davis. Sadly, since 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 passed away, um, but his presence is still certainly still felt there in that department and on campus. Yeah. Um, the um, so boy, I just love these stories. I love these. Yeah. To me, they're these career profession origin stories. Um, yeah. So econ major, right? Right. Yep. Who would have thought, right? I mean, just yeah, really. right? or or Siri, our chaplain, you know, chemistry major. To but so, how did you find your way from econ and poli sci to? Did you take? I guess you had to probably had to take a religion course. At oh, a little bit, but no. Yeah. So. By the way, Siri and, Siri and I worked together for nine years in Stillwater oh. before she came to Gustavus. Oh, I so I, I owe her a lot. She taught me a ton as a colleague, and I had, I just think the world of her. Anyway, she's terrific. Yeah, we, yep. we recorded together for the podcast. She's great. Yeah. Okay, um, that's one smart human being. Um, yeah. So yeah, my junior year of college, I went to Denmark on on an exchange program through Gustavus. Uh, my my mother's side of the family is all Danish immigrants. So, and and went to the economic school in Copenhagen. 
came back from that and I was supposed to intern at the federal court system, court system in uh, the Twin Cities. And somehow my application got messed up. <laughs> and I had no job for the summer. And I drove a friend of mine to Lutheran Youth Encounter training session in the summer. And and uh, I walked in and I knew a handful of people in the in the training. Uh, some of them were Gustavus students at the time. And uh, I hung out kind of for the day. And partway through the day, they said, well, what are you doing this summer? And I said, well, really nothing. And they said, why don't you join a team? So I spent, <laughs> I spent the summer traveling in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and Wisconsin with a group of five other people. And through the end of the summer, they came to me and said, we have a spot on a national team. Would you like to take the rest of this year, meaning the academic year, and travel with them? And I really wanted to. And again, here comes my father in this story. Uh, we were at a church in Maple Grove at a concert that we were doing. And because um, that's what Lutheran Youth Encounter was at the time. It was six of us in a van. We did Sunday morning worship services, vacation Bible school, Bible camps, uh, youth gatherings, things like that. And I was, I was the talker in the group. I didn't really have any musical talent. So I'd fake <laughs> my way through singing or playing guitar. And then, but I was the one that kind of emceed the program a little bit. And, um, and I remember sitting in a parking lot in Maple Grove with my dad. And again, I'm his, you know, oldest and the only one that's gone to college out of the three kids. I'm within a year of graduating and my request of him as we sat in this car in the parking lot is I'd like to take a year off. And I think about that now from a parent's perspective. And I'm sure that with every fiber of his being, the man wanted to tell me no, and sure. he couldn't do it. And I think, frankly, the only reason he couldn't tell me no is because it had something to do with the church. And, and my dad just couldn't, couldn't say no. And so I took that year off and I think he and my mom were probably convinced I was never going back to college. They, they didn't understand what this trajectory was. And frankly, neither did I. You probably um, didn't either, right? Yeah. No, no. Mark Urson was another Gustavus grad um, student. He was on that team. Um, anyway, got done with that year and went back to Gustavus and I'd kind of fallen in love with the church at that point. We stayed at 75 different congregations that year. And I listened to people's stories about why the church mattered to them. And although that wasn't what I thought we were talking about, that's what I came away with all the time and thought, well, my, 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 <laughs> my home pastor at that time, the senior pastor had changed and it was Gary Anderson who was on the board of trustees at Gustavus not long after this period of time and was on for a long time was my pastor. And he had kind of been recruiting me a little bit to, mm -hmm. to maybe think about seminary. So I decided to give seminary a one year trial, much like I had Gustavus and loved it. I, I thought they wouldn't want me and I didn't really think I wanted to be a pastor, but over the course of those four years, I felt called. And, um, then Gary hired me as a youth director in my home church as I came out of Gustavus and, and went to seminary. And um, 
And there you go. I got married. Gretchen, uh, my wife, her dad was a pastor in the American Lutheran Church. I think she swore she'd never marry a pastor. And <laughs> I was probably least like a pastor of anybody. But anyway, she, her brother and I were classmates at seminary. We met and uh, fell in love. And somewhere at the very beginning of my first call in Wallet Grove, we got married. And it was years later that Gretchen would still whisper in my ear once in a while, you know, you can still go to law school. And uh, <laughs> it probably wasn't until 20 years into my career that I finally thought, you know, this is what I think I'm doing for the rest of my career. So That's a great um, story. And I'm, I'm, at least maybe she didn't swear on the Bible, I hope. That's a no, different story. No, no, no. But you know, I'm, I, seriously, I just, I cannot get enough of these stories because so many students, too many, um, not just at Gustavus and parents sometimes, but, you know, feel they have to have it all figured yeah. out from day yeah. one. And yeah. that's just nuts, right? I yeah. think it's crazy. I always say just be open, even though I had it all figured. I mean, even though I knew I yeah. wanted to be. <laughs> but yeah. I, I love it. I mean, you know, there's no there's no straight line from no. where you came from, even though you were, you were going to church and stuff as a kid, right? You, yeah. There's no straight line from there to Gustavus. This is all about what... Um, well, a lot of people use the phrase, but his, some historians, I'm one of them, love to talk about contingency, contingencies yeah. that, yep. that, you know, happen. Um, so what if that application, right? I mean, there you go. Yeah, what totally. if your application? Yeah, who knows? I'd be talking to a lawyer now, maybe. That's a wonderful story. I love it. Yeah. So did you, um, what other course did you, did you take, um, and it's okay if you didn't, but did you take history courses, literature courses at Gustavus? What else did you? Yeah, I was. poli sci for sure. Yes, and I, I. I played trumpet for a couple of years until I realized you weren't going to get into the most interesting ensembles if you weren't a music major. And I was in debate, I think, up until I traveled to Denmark. And okay, I love debate. That. And that was yeah. a good experience for me at Gustavus. We were, we were a really good scrappy program for a Division three school. And uh, I remember going to junior nationals and we did quite well. And um that was yeah. that was really exciting. I was we, I, I spent way more time in libraries than I'd ever really want to admit. But um, yeah, I loved that. But no, I was kind of eclectic. I liked a lot of things. Um, I remember Claire McCrosty. I want yeah, to say Claire sure. Econ Prof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who you know everybody has a story about him. And I remember there was a blue book exam, and for whatever reason. I was in this class with him and it was in the winter time because I remember it was a cold day and we had taken a blue book exam and the next day or whenever the grades, whenever they were graded and he was handing them out, he took my blue book and he didn't say whose it was, but I had used an ampersand instead of the oh. word and throughout oh, yeah. that entire, why I have no idea. Right. I mean, this was like 1979. So what did I know? And, um, and he held it up and just berated the author of this thing for using such a lazy symbol, right? Oh, wow. and I remember dying about a thousand deaths. And um, anyway, see, I, I love it. Oh yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, the the one reason I love it. This is when I wish I could go back in time because I think I kind of joke. Okay, if I did that today, right? I'd oh, be, oh. I know I could be sued, right? Or I'm, yeah. you know. I'm destroying yep. someone's self-esteem for life. I mean, it's awesome. Yep. I think it's great. <laughs> and it's just good to know there once was a time at Gustavus when professors could do those sorts of things. Well, which I, <laughs> I survived. And yeah, when we had a true. private conversation, he let me know that he expected more from me yeah. and knew that I had it. Okay. Right. So in the end, it was an extremely positive 
experience for me. Exactly. Um, it wasn't, he was berating, but for a purpose, not just yeah, to. It was yeah. a, it was a positive near death experience. I think would be the way I, clarifying, right? It was very yeah. clarifying. That, yeah, Claire, no, Claire, Claire McCrosty clarifying. Exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's a great story. I love those stories. <laughs> and we all have, I mean, well, I don't know if the current generation will have them, but yeah. um, you know, everything is so, Oh, it's wonderful. Everything's great. You know, no, sometimes I want to, you know, say something like, that you know this is unacceptable (laughs) you can do better so i just so you you wound up in uh seminary tell me a little more about um and the listeners what 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 it's like to what it's like to go to seminary i mean what do you study i mean do you study how to write sermons for example Mm -hmm. preach etc yeah you know there's (laughs) well it has changed a lot right i think i think over time it's gotten more practical which is a good thing uh because going into a community of faith and accepting this kind of servant leadership position takes some technical skill. It's not just simply about your theology. Uh, and right. frankly, a lot of the preaching courses that I took were a little divorced from reality. I mean, you find yourself as a 27-year-old in a farm community like Walnut Grove. <laughs> I'm not sure they prepared me for that at all. You know <laughs> that, um, And luckily, they were healthy enough uh, I was the third seminary grad in a row they had ever had. So they were good at training young clergy. And I think they, so anyway, I benefited from that, but no seminary, a lot of um, deconstruction at first, you know, your, your faith comes that you come in and most of us have a pretty simple faith and a simple understanding of scripture. And in some ways you need to be, that needs to be broken down quite a bit mm. in order that you can see it for what it really is. And then you appreciate the richness behind it. Not everyone survives that journey, right? Because they, they don't want to be dissuaded from their I, idealism right. about the Bible. Right. So, right. um, so that can be a little rough. Um, <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. I'm thinking there's something comparable uh, at Gustavus, when students take a uh, a course from a you know religion prof and discover yep. things aren't quite what they grew up believing or thinking, you know, yep. there's a, sometimes yep. a crisis of some sort. Yeah, yep. but um, you you know you 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 strike me. I, I don't know you that well. I've only yeah. really met you since the one uh, academic yeah. affairs committee meeting. But you yeah. strike me as someone who's incredibly. Uh, both intellectually curious and 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 highly competent, and I really meant that about running the meetings. And it's funny, um, you said something earlier. In fact, now I'm forgetting what you said, but it reminded me. It was like, no, no wonder you know how to run a meeting. Oh, it's when you said yes. You were when you were traveling around the country that year. You were M, you were the MC, which is essentially right. like chairing the. No yep. wonder you're good at it. But um, what what about? I'm always curious as as. Uh, as a teacher, and sometimes students will say to me, and you know, in their comments, you know, too much preaching, not enough teaching, mm-hmm. or no, no, anyway, yep. um, preaching, teaching. But I'm, I, and and partly from studying um, some ministers in the in the American past, like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Grandison Finney and Henry Ward Beecher. But what's it like for you when, when you when you have to write a sermon? I mean, how do you how do you approach doing that? Hmm. Yeah. You know, actually, that's gotten tremendously easier for me over time. And, mm. and part of it is just the repetition of it. And I I probably am an outlier. I, um, 
you start with a text? Is that how you start or how do you? You know, it's interesting. So if you step back and think about the arc of a whole year of worship life in a community of faith, a congregation, what I've learned is you, you can always default to the narrative lectionary, which is the set of scriptures that are prescribed over the course of a year, right? Mm. And most of my colleagues around the country probably follow that pardon the pun, religiously. Mm-hmm. I, I have, because the mission start I did in Illinois required different things. Those stories that are selected for the lectionary have some challenges to them for an ordinary non-church person, not all that conversant with the Bible to understand. Sure. And oftentimes in a traditional place, you might hear four or three readings on a given Sunday. That didn't really work for unchurched or de-churched people very well because those three or four lessons might not have spoken to each other. There might not have been what you would call a through line or a simple idea. Over time, I became really enamored with every worship service needs one major metaphor, one idea, one thought Mm -hmm. that you need to pull through every part of that experience to be able to to really do something well in 40 minutes or 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. You can't have 18 ideas out on the table all the time or you're just going to lose everybody. So I I learned to kind of work backwards so that over the course of the year, at the beginning of when we start planning for a year, I want to ask the question, what does this community of faith need to experience this year? Um, And it's more of a pastoral question, right? Of like, what... What does this community need to experience and learn and and do together over the course of the year? And that tends to drive the the preaching and worship focuses for the year for us. So we may go back to the traditional lectionary on Advent and Christmas, that little season, or uh, uh, Lent and Easter. But the rest of the year, really, we'll be trying to organize things in three or four week segments of kind of major ideas or experiences that we want to to offer to the community and have them experience. And then we build the worship service around those ideas or questions or metaphors. So when it gets time to prepare a very specific message, it's probably one of four and I want them to connect somehow. And um, I just try to find a hook, uh, you know, in every, every biblical text, you know, where, and I really love kind of positioning yourself in the story in a particular way. And you can take the same story and position yourself as a different character in the story or a different aspect of the story and come up with an entirely different message uh, and, and point. So I really, I really start with a pretty ruthless kind of what's the one thing in here. And then how many ways can I try to express that so that it's a clear idea. And, and what I love to do is give people one great question. Like if I can get them hooked on one great question that they have to answer for themselves over the course of the next week, I feel like I've done a good thing. Yeah. And, and one metaphor, one word, one image that somehow draws them a little closer into knowing um, themselves or God or their neighbor a little better. That's all I have to do. And so it's, it's really interesting. I, I, Greg, I, you know, my best work sometimes comes to me after thinking about something and let it, let it kind of percolate for, you know, a few weeks. Cause I'm, I like to work ahead of time, but I'll wake up in the morning and I'll have, I'll sit down on a blank piece of paper and have, and be done in 20 minutes. Wow. Um, 
just it's all there. Like I, you've, been, it, you've been drafting, you've been drafting it in a way yeah, in your head. Yeah, over, yeah. Um, yep. I I, I kind of work the same way. Um, and and you know what you're describing really. I mean, I'm just listening to you describe, you know, coming up with the theme for the year, and then you know for you know. Yeah. sort of units. I mean, you're describing yeah. creating a course, yes. essentially. It's really yep. very, you, you've obviously been a very, very effective professor um, because <laughs> what you're describing is what, what, what I think a good, certainly in history, what a good course consists of, right? Here are the, here are the major themes we want our students to understand. Here's how we're going to attack those themes and, you know, ending with questions, starting with questions and ending with questions, right? Yeah. Um, that they have to wrestle with. So, um, do, is there such a thing as a fire and brimstone preacher in within the ELCA? I, don't, I mean, you know, is this mm. all? Well, no, I probably not a very good one. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think yeah. you know, a fire and brimstone is about uh, creating fear. Yeah, uh, you know, I think we're off the rails. So, it, um, there, there, I think there are people who are very good at capturing people's religious imagination or stimulating it, and that's really what you're there to do. You're not there to answer things for people necessarily, or mm -hmm. uh, tell them what to think. Uh, you know, we're not lifting up people's heads and, and saying, here's orthodoxy, you know, and, and here's these 10 statements of biblical principles. We need you to agree on them to be a member of this community. So sign here and press hard. You know, we, right. that's just not the point. Um, the, at, at Shepherd of the Lake, we've gotten down to a very simple uh, statement um, that started way back in the day with Siri and I back in Stillwater, uh, Siri Erickson, Siri Dale at the time, um, wherever you are in your faith journey, you're welcome here. Hmm. And, and we've added on to that now. And, and we greet you here with open heart, open mind and open table. And hmm. we've, we've articulated the congregation's values around those three things of, of open mindedness, open heartedness, and an open table. And, um, so that, yeah, you know, those, I think that I, what I may have seen a video actually just occurred to me. I may have seen a, a video of you talking, video of you talking about those. Likely, I think yeah. I did somewhere. Yeah. yeah, likely. So I mean, I I just think people, especially in today's world, um, need a very clear, simple theology that allows them to grow. Like it's just right. provocative. That's just or evocative yeah. of the things they already know that are true about God and themselves and the world. That that. I believe everybody's got what they need if they can, if you can just stimulate their religious imagination, because then it's just a matter of sight, right? Like, are you seeing the things in the world um, as they really are? And if you can help somebody gain that set of vision, they see grace all around them. They see, they see God at work all around them. And it, and I'm much more interested than that, than um, trying to tell people who's in and who's out, right. who's right and who's wrong. And, yes. And here are the rules and follow them or else, you know, that's just not gospel. So, yeah. And, and again, I don't want to, I don't mean to push the parallels too much, but, you know, substitute historical thinking for, I think, yes. the grace of God or the same sort yeah. of thing. I don't, yeah. I don't really care. First of all, as one scholar said, you can look up all the names and dates on your iPhone now, you know, there's <laughs> the Google, right? right? So that's right. But can you think historically, do you have a historical awareness? And then as you go about the world seeing history, literally seeing it, or maybe you didn't see it before or appreciate it before. You, you so know, what's created an urgency for me, and, and I think, you know, we, it'd be easy to critique the moment we have just been living through here in America as evidence of the fact that 
not enough of our population has a good historical um, ability to think historically, right? Um, similarly, I would say I I grieve a lot over the fact that it seems like a lot of people do not have an adequate theology or theological lens or evaluative set of tools to be able to see bad theology versus helpful life-giving theology. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, as much as the church has declined over my career, I think we've only become more important over the past decade. It's just, we have a lot of work to do. So. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's interesting. It also leads me to my next, um, question, which is, which is related because I mean, there are, you know, we just have to be honest. There are, there are religious people who deny science. Um, there just are. And, Mm -hmm. um, you, some years ago, I don't remember the exact year, you, I know it's been a while, but you and, and many other clergy signed, I, th- I think it's a remarkable document. It's called, um, it was the Clergy Letter from American Christian Clergy, an open letter concerning religion and science. And you you make the case in there, I, I actually urge everybody to Google this and read it, whether you're a religious person or not, but you, you all make the case that science and religion uh, – can go together. The last, I'll read just one sentence. We ask that science remain science and that religion remain religion, two very different but complementary forms of truth. And one of the things you were all getting at in that letter is is evolution and that evolution shouldn't be taught as simply quote unquote one theory among others. Right. Um, but I'm curious about, um, and again, this may be, you know, you may have to <laughs> shake your memory a little bit here, but um, what, what, what brought you to sign that, um, and, and how are religion and science? Because that's also that's also a Gustavus, right? That's very much a part of Gustavus that faith and science can can and should go together. What what what, what do you think? About yeah, that? I, I love the work again to bring up our colleague Siri, the work that she and others have done on campus uh, for our high school students this summer camp on science and ethics and faith. Yes, really important work. And I, you know, again, the open minded part of our mission at Shepherd Lake is, you know, you don't check your brain at the door. And Mm -hmm. it it breaks my heart that I think starting somewhere in Sunday school, we start, we embrace, you know, a lot of churches still embrace this kind of mythical, childish way of talking about God that they never they never change for a child through confirmation and into high school. And really, we lose our smartest kids, the ones that are really engaged uh, in STEM, you know, mm-hmm. just get the impression from the popular culture around them that science and faith are incompatible. And I don't think that's ever been a part of Lutheranism, at least not modern Lutheranism. And it's certainly not a part of our denomination. And I think it's something that a lot of my peers are working hard to overtly embrace science because it, you know, if we really want to affirm the fact that God made this world and that it is a knowable world that can be appropriated by logic and observation, and then where, where is the disconnect there? You know, if, if, if we believe that God made a nonsensical world, well, maybe then we can close our eyes to the things that science teaches us. Right. And want to believe some, um, you know, fantastical way in which God did all this and left evidence of a very different kind of creation, what, to puzzle us or to confuse us? I don't know. But I think, um, 
I just, I, I love the intersection of faith and science. I think whether you are looking at the smallest possible thing in the universe, or you're looking up in the heavens at the largest possible understanding of this multi multiverse, um, all of it's God's handiwork. And so by knowing it more, it seems to me it's, it's a path to actually be more in awe of the creative imagination of God. So, you know, I, I have never seen any conflict. I don't think I was raised believing that. And I, I'm kind of dumbfounded how in this day and age, anybody gets away with teaching <laughs> that science isn't right. real. I just, yeah. I can't even imagine that. So, yeah, no, that's all. I mean, that's, that's all I, I wouldn't, I guess I'm, maybe I'm a religious person in the broadest or spiritual, I don't know, but I don't, I don't go to church, but, but still I can understand what you just said well it makes sense to me that okay yeah. if you, you believe in god why i mean what kind of god is it who would say don't use right. reason right? right don't don't think right. critically and then right. i just had this vision of um Maybe it'll turn out God was not not only went to a liberal arts college, but was a <laughs> physics major or something. Who knows? Science major. <laughs> anyway, I, I just think I, I had not read the letter before until um, preparing for the podcast. I found it absolutely fascinating. And again, I urge listeners to to look at it. I know there's been a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but some pushback by by. Um, so the very people at whom it's directed, I suppose. Right, exactly. <laughs> but not, yeah, not so, no surprise. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I just think it's it's a critique I would have of our national denomination is that we're probably not loud enough and proud enough about who we really are, um, whether it's on matters of inclusion or racial justice or the embrace of science or the work that's being done on climate change. Um, I think the world is, I think this country is poised um, to possibly have a renaissance of faith if we would grab the microphone and the megaphone away from the evangelical anti-science mm -hmm. uh, creationalists who currently have the megaphone. And yeah. um, I, I think that needs to happen. So... Yeah, I mean, I I, I would agree. Um, yeah. Speaking as someone who believes strongly, I I sometimes joke Gustavus's tagline should be, you know, Gustavus is off his college. We believe and we believe in science, you know, something like right. that. Right, <laughs> <Based> in science. <laughs> the, um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, you never think you would have to put that in your tagline, but right. no, um, I know. I mean, that's where we're at, right? And there's yeah. you know, there's this strain in our culture goes way back, and but yeah, it's who has the megaphone. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I know we could talk more about that. And I would love to. We're going to have to do another yeah. podcast, but I want to talk. Um, you just mentioned racial justice and climate change, and both yeah. of those issues are uh, on, on so many college campuses now, especially since um, what happened here in Minneapolis in May with the, yeah. the killing of Mr. George Floyd. But um, talk. A a little bit about your um, your your role on the board. I mean, how did how did you come to be a board mm -hmm. member uh, for Gustavus, and and what you know what what the board is doing to kind of um, I don't know how to put this. I mean, the, but the board is the board has been, I think, quite good on these issues, especially uh, quite recently, racial justice. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, how I came to be on the board is probably not all that interesting. <laughs> um, so I won't even go there. I just, I, I was pleased to be asked and I have to just say it's the best service I've ever been committed to outside of the work of the congregations I've served. I, um, and I learned something every time we get together, I think the world of president Bergman and the cabinet, and I love Gustavus students. Um, 
And the, the highlight of every board meeting when we get the opportunity is to have breakfast with students kind of on a randomized basis and just listen to their stories and their questions. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really amazing place and I'm grateful to be a small part of, of helping it continue to be that. I think, um, you know, if I could just say one thing about the, the thing I'm most proud about during my time on the board has been the work we've done on shared governance, which mm -hmm. in, in a short way is just the healing or, or, um, investment in the relationship between the administration the board and the faculty, that yes. kind of three-legged yes. entity that is, you know, responsible for the, for the college. And I, um, I'm just really pleased about the fact that we have created a system where the faculty, the administration and the board can help each other understand what's around the corner and how, and clarifying who has major responsibility on any given decision, because depending on the decision, you know, the faculty needs to take the lead, has the lead, has the obligation to take the lead. At other times, it's the administration and sometimes it's the board and understanding right. which group has responsibility and, and and how the other two parties can be forthright about their needs and perspectives on an issue and to do it in a timely enough manner to be able to find a path forward before it becomes contentious. Right. Um, uh, I just love that aspect of what's happened with the board over time. And I feel lucky that I got to witness both the pain of why that needed to happen and the process by which it came to happen and the full embrace of that structure by both the faculty and the board and the administration. And so that I'm I'm extremely pleased about and grateful to have been along with for the ride on that. Um, with regard yes. to racial, yeah, so I'll stop there. But in, with no, regard to I, racial I, justice, I might have one other thing to say sure. about the board. I, you know, it, this after after the murder of George Floyd, you know, the board's first impulse was to say something, and we slowed down a little bit a lot of the board looks like me, right? They're, they're white, privileged, older. And I think we came to realize once we slowed down a little bit that actually the board needs to be in a listening position here mm -hmm. and in a learning position that especially yeah. our students, our younger alums uh, that are on the board and some of the faculty have a much deeper lived experience and vocabulary and... Um, construction about these issues and that we really can bring an openness to the situation and an eagerness to be helpful and healthy and positive, but that we needed to step back so that we could learn from the students and the faculty and our young trustees to help us navigate this in yes. a way that would be most helpful. And I think the risk of speaking too soon but from a position of kind of either innocence or ignorance would not have served us well. And I'm really glad that we've slowed down a little bit and, um, and have decided to take a learning posture so that we can be supportive of the really needed changes that, that have right. to happen here. And, 
And um, yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And you know, the board's resolution reflects that the the, yeah. the, the resolution passed well, maybe in October. Yeah. I can't yep. remember. Yep. But and also, I have to say that is um, at the first academic affairs committee meeting of the board, which you chaired. I'm on it as a member yep. of the Senate. Um, yep. It was an online meeting. You chaired it so well, so so efficient, but also so willing to hear and listen. That you you made that point quite clearly, and that. Um, that impressed me for for all the reasons you just said, and also because um, you know there there's no way to understand this stuff without understanding some of the history behind it, and yeah. so um, just the idea that. Uh, you know, a board member, a past chair of the board, and the chair of the Academic Affairs Committee is saying to that, right? We need to listen, and that's that. That's a through line in all your work. I've I've seen and just you know reading about you and um, that openness to listening is is so key and so important. I don't know how one learns without that. For first of all, right. about anything, right? Um, right. But you're you're anyway. I, I'm thinking about how my my colleagues elsewhere listening to this podcast will uh, be envious that uh, you're not on their board. But too bad. Oh. <laughs> I want to I want to I want to ask you a little bit about the time remaining. Yeah. Um, future studies. I just found that so interesting. A doctorate of ministry semiotics and future studies. That is that one program or from Portland. Yeah. What yeah, was that about? What led you to that? And again, I think it reflects your your intellectual you know curiosity. Yeah. Yeah, there was an author uh, and uh, teacher who was at one point the, I think the dean of um, theology at Drew, um, named uh, Len Sweet, and he's just an author that had captivated me a little bit. He specializes in language and metaphor uh, more than anything. And a friend of mine applied for this program and asked me to be a reference. And once I looked at it, I thought, let me do this with you. And <laughs> uh, I got to just say, at fifty years old, it's great to go back and learn again. I think I read more in those three years than I had in 10 years. And it's it's really a study about um, metaphors and, and the power right. of metaphors and the power of story. And it was really great to immerse myself in that. And my particular artifact that I worked on was about um, agile organizations, lean organizations, and taking um, design theory as a as a concept, as well as um, self-directed work teams and imagining and and then practicing congregations being a flat organization. So doing um, away with all the typical committees and structures of a congregation and allowing uh, the people of the congregation to self-organize and uh, do important work on their own. Um, so anyway, that's I'm kind of an organizational design junkie a little bit. Yeah, if anything yeah, animates me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and in the end it was about releasing the creative power of the congregation. And I hmm. I believe in that. Um I'm not always the most perfect um practitioner of all of that. Um, but it was really stimulating. And uh the reading I got to do was extremely diverse. Um so yeah, I think for me it was both the content of what I was learning and just the the process of learning itself that was really invigorating later in my career to kind of have another rebirth of, of creativity and energy and imagination. So, wow, this yeah. is, um, this is a perfect ending for a podcast right. called learning for life, <laughs> learning for life at Gustavus. Seriously. Perfect. Um, yeah, I feel it's so funny. I feel so alive when I'm learning, whether teaching and learning, learning from students, reading, it's just, it's such a good feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
this has been a pleasure. I could keep thank going, but I know I'm supposed to keep it to roughly an hour, yep. so we'll have to there stop. But thank you. Thank you, Dan, so much, Pastor Poffenberger. Thank you yep. so much. Good luck with all the work um, and, the, and the continuing online creativity as we get through the, the, the current pandemic. And thank you also for all your work on on behalf of Gustavus, including Great. the self-governance work. Yeah. Mm, thank you for your thank you for your good leadership and scholarship. And thanks for the opportunity, Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks. Thanks.